the American Battlefield Trust seeks to preserve our nation's hallowed battlegrounds and educate the public about what happened there and why it matters today. They permanently protect these battlefields for future generations as a lasting and tangible memorial to the brave soldiers who fought in the American Revolution, the War of 1812, and the Civil War. You can help save battlefield land today by visiting battlefields.org. What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. My name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian. And again, it's just been so awesome to have you along on this journey uh, throughout history and having so much to discuss within the history field. We've been having interviews. I've been giving feedback on certain things that I've experienced. And I've been uh, bringing some of you into my live stream uh, audio experience, which has been great. And we're going to keep that up for this week because I owe this guy a podcast. And I think that this discussion that we had at the Gary Owen Irish Pub in Gettysburg is worthy of a podcast episode. And that is with my buddy Steve Fan. Of, uh, he, he works in the Defenses of Washington uh, National Park Service. And it's just been a, a great uh, experience to know him and to have him discuss the defenses of Washington during the Civil War. And that's what we talked about at the Gary Owen Irish Pub. He came up here to Gettysburg area and just, you know, lit up the room with all this historical knowledge. We had people there uh, from different walks of life. We had people there who were professional historians. We had students. We had people who were just history nerds off the street, which is great. And uh, Steve really did a wonderful job, and I really want to bring this to you because it's he's worthy of having even more acknowledgement for all the work he does with the uh, Civil War Defenses of Washington, and it's just been an awesome ride to know him. They have a great online presence as well on Facebook and Instagram. You'll see Steve on there a lot, doing a, a lot of different things, and sometimes even doing live stream tours of the Civil War Defenses of Washington. Uh, so please go on there, check it out, and like their pages and follow them. They do a wonderful job. Um, on top of all this, I want to remind you that this weekend I'll be speaking at Boston National Historical Park, more specifically at the Charlestown Navy Yard this Saturday and Sunday. Uh, it's a full day of talks and presentations involving uh, Boston during World War II on the home front, and it's going to be a great event. They expect thousands of people to show up. I'm on at noon and 2, and I'm talking about training facilities in the Boston area. I'm going to be a little heavy with Fort Devens because there's a lot of information out there about it, and uh, I think that it's a really great story. So I'm really looking forward to that and future live streams coming up, especially in September and October, and it's going to be a really great time. But for now, I want to bring you Steve Fan talking about the Civil War defenses of Washington, especially during the 1864 campaigns of Confederate General Early. When Juba Early comes north 155 years ago to uh, invade Maryland and to threaten Washington, D.C., we get into that part of it. And I think that's a really great story to be 
to be told. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, here's my friend, live from the Gary Owen Irish Pub, Steve Fan. All right, good evening, everybody. Welcome to this installment of the Tattoo Historian Presents. My name is John. I am the Tattoo Historian. And uh, I have three sponsors to thank tonight, uh, which is pretty awesome. But first, I want to thank you all for coming out. It's a beautiful day outside, and you've decided to come into the air conditioning and hear a little history, so we're very happy about that. Uh, it's good to see everyone up at the bar and having a good time. Uh, first, I want to thank uh, Gettysburg Foundation for their continued support. Uh, I'm a proud member of the Recruit Program, so thank you guys for that. Thank you also to the Gaysburg National Military Park for, for being a sponsor for this one. And last but not least, I want to uh, thank Civil War Trails for, for being a sponsor. We actually have some of their brochures here. Uh, about the attack on Washington, which we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, Drew Gruber, I want to give a special shout-out to him for, for helping us along. You may have heard about them a lot on the live streams we did from Monocacy. Uh, they are the largest open-air museum in the country, and they have dozens of these brochures of different areas where their wayside markers are, so I want to give them a special shout-out for sponsoring tonight's program as well. And a very special shout-out to my guest, Steve Fan is here with us this evening. Did you bring your fan club with you? Yes, I do. I see him in the audience right now. This is what a microphone's for. <laughs> yeah, my, my biggest fan's off to the left there, Chris Gwynn. I see John Heiser here, my friend Anthony. And I, 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 even, I even had people from D.C. follow me all the way up here. So I may have driven them, but they are here. So. <laughs> <laughs> Did you drag them along, or did they come willingly? They volunteered to come, actually. Oh. It's a big surprise. Okay, that's awesome. But uh, Steve has been a friend of mine for a while, and we were uh, Facebook friends first. And then uh, we, we kind of started to be fans of each other. Indeed. And uh, we decided to work together on, on some things here in the future, and this is one of them. So I'm, I'm so glad you've been able to come up here this evening and take part in this. Happy to be, to be here. It's always fun to escape the heat of D.C. It's even hotter in D.C. than it is in Gettysburg. Imagine that. So a nice little uh, respite, and I'm happy to be here amongst friends. So, so we have uh, – those of you who watched the live stream that I did from Monoxy with my friends, uh, we talked about – earliest campaign into Maryland, and Steve is going to be talking about the Fort Stevens events and, and stuff going on down there 155 years ago. Uh, how long ago was that? A couple of days ago, right? Yes. Yeah. We had our anniversary program this past Saturday, but July 11th and 12th uh, were the battles of Fort Stevens, right. so just about a week ago. Right. So uh, it was really cool to be doing some outreach with that and talking about that campaign in 1864 because a lot of people forget about it, uh, which is kind of weird. Uh, but diving down into it, Steve, give, give everyone here and, and watching a little bit of your background before we get really into the weeds of Fort Stevens. Well, yes, I'm a park ranger for the Civil War Defenses of Washington. We manage 17 Civil War sites around the National Capital Region in D.C., and we work with three national parks in the region to manage these sites. Uh, I work a lot with Rock Creek Park in the northern part of D.C. We manage several sites there, including Fort Stevens. My office is at Battleground National Cemetery, which is also managed by Rock Creek Park. That's where 40 soldiers originally 
are originally interred that were killed in action during the battle, federal soldiers. Uh, we oversee sites on the southeast side across the Anacostia River as well. We call that National Capital Parks East or NACE. And if, when you think of NACE, think of uh, Frederick Douglass House and Kennewark Aquatic Gardens. And then we also manage Fort Marcy on the George Washington Memorial Parkway. So those are the three sites we work with. There's a ton of Civil War history in Washington, D.C. And I've, um, I'm very grateful and have the opportunity to travel around the city and do a lot of different programming. So that's what I've been trying to connect visitors to, not only the defenses of Washington, but Civil War Washington in general. Yeah, and I've laid out some of the uh, brochures from Civil War Defenses of Washington on each of the tables. Uh, you're more than welcome to take one because I stole them from them. That's right. Uh, at, at Monoxy, they had a nice spread, and I'm like, I'll take like 20 of these. <laughs> uh, so, so they're there for you to, to take with you this evening as well. Uh, but how do you want to start out this evening, Steve? This is, this is your show this wow. evening, and I would love for you to, to start us out with Early's you know, drive into Maryland and into Fort Stevens. I think I'd like to start with just um, the idea of fortifying Washington, which really began in the early spring of 1861 when federal engineers in the federal army uh, reconnoitered the area around D.C. and they made some conclusions and suggestions to the army high command. And this was right after Lincoln was elected. So coming to the end of 1860 into 1861, and the engineers say, hey, if you look across the Potomac River and you see Arlington, Virginia, including where the Lee property was at, there, that's formidable high ground. They called it the Arlington Heights. And they were fearful if Virginia joined um, the rest of the Confederacy that the Confederate Army could roll up artillery to shell the city. And so the engineers, including uh, General John G. Barnard, he's the father or the chief engineer of the defenses and really saw them from their foundation to their major development said, you might, uh, we, we might have to take the initiative with this. So in May, late May, when the federal government realized that Virginia would secede from the Union, federal, engineer, I mean, federal soldiers in three different columns crossed the Potomac River that evening, occupied Arlington Heights, moved down to Alexandria the next day, and they immediately started building earthworks. So well before First Manassas or Bull Run, they were already building um, forts. Obviously, after the Battle of Manassas, they're going to build several more as George McClellan comes over, takes command of the armies around D.C. And I like to say the, um, the defenses of Washington evolved during the war. So by the end of 1861, you'll see about 48 forts around D.C. Into 62 and into 63, you'll see about 60. Um, by the time Early gets to D.C., there's going to be 68 eight major forts around the capital, uh, supported by 93 um, batteries or gun positions or cannon positions, um, 30 miles of military road connected the forts, about 35 miles of earthworks connected all the forts around the city. The soldiers themselves and civilian laborers cut down about 20,000 acres of trees for open fields of fire to help build their earthworks, barracks, other structures, and the, cannon, the forts mounted about 800 cannons. So when we talk about Washington, D.C. being one of the most heavily fortified cities in the world, that's one of the things uh, we'd like to talk about. Because uh, when we're at a place like Gettysburg or if you go down to Virginia and see Chancellorsville and Fredericksburg, you always uh, read about federal army commanders having to pre protect D.C. or at least keep in mind that D.C. needs to be, be protected. So when they move forward with their offensive campaigns, in the back of their mind, they have to keep D.C. Um, there, right? Just in case we have to fall back and to the protection of the forts at D.C. That's all going to change in 1864 when Grant 
you know, goes through his overland campaign, takes a lot of casualties. He's going to strip the defenses of the heavy artillerists, and that will provide an opportunity when Early comes up through the valley to attack the city. So really, it's it's not only a, an idea of the impact of, of Washington and, and militarily, but it's also the impact of it environmentally. They're cutting down all these trees. They're changing the landscape. They're doing all that uh, just to begin with. Yes, and, and affecting a lot of the civilian landowners in the area. If you own a lot of property or you own property on high ground or strategic avenues of approach to the city, the Army just came in and they took over your land. So I, I gave a program today to about 30 people. Uh, we were north of... Uh, Rock Creek Park, the Nature Center and Planetarium, and there was a, a, a fort there called Fort DeRussi, which would be heavily engaged in the Battle of Fort Stevens. There's a gentleman that owned property there, about eight, 90 acres when the war started. The Army occupied 88 acres of his land during the, during the war. So he would spend the next 20 years or so you know, filing claims of damages against the federal government. So just imagine um, the Army just coming in, altering your landscape, and saying, hey, you'll get this when, when it's over. And then conversely, there's a lot of stuff coming into the city as well. So my focus has really shift, shifted from the military aspect to what the forts um, mean to people coming in. They become f uh, beacons of freedom for literally 40 to 50,000 formerly enslaved African Americans come into the city during the Civil War, and they have to pass by the forts. So I'm reading those accounts right now. A lot of them are, ri are written in uh, regimental histories of federal regiments that built and occupied the forts, and as early as January 1862, especially for the soldiers that are on the Maryland line, right? They're told, you know, this Fugitive Slave Act is still, you know, it's still there. Maryland is a part of the United States, and so you have to obey federal law. The soldiers on the ground, um, they're just not obeying by that. So slavery breaks down on the ground, and you see this interaction, I call it the interaction of, of slavery and freedom in D.C. So the soldiers say, we're not going to follow those rules. We're not returning these, these people back to their owners. Um, and they start hiring on a lot of these, especially young men and even young boys as camp servants and cooks and things like that, even as uh, servants. And so we have these wonderful images of encampments around D.C. and right by the forts, and there's literally images of young black men in uniform um, living in and around the forts. So slavery really does break down in the confines of Washington, D.C. So there's a lot of different things we can talk about because, you know, Fort Stevens is two days. You know, people are in D.C. for three to four years. So there's a lot of stuff that we like to, to talk about um, and really um, unra um, unravel. Um, and I always talk about layers of history, and we just like to peel it back piece by piece and let people connect to that. What about the soldiers who are actually there? If we're talking about them over time. You know, how, what kind of soldiers are we talking about? How are they seen by others? Like yeah, that. that's a great question, and that, that actually changes. Um, I always talk about the evolution of the defenses of Washington. So the original men that are in the forts are actually the, the Army of the Potomac, the three-year enlistees that are part of General McClellan's first grand army. They come in, the majority of them will come in after First Manassas or Bull Run, and they're given orders to fortify the city. That's why by the end of 1861, there's 48 major forts around the city, and they'll live in encampments near or around the forts. And those are the original guys. When they leave for the Peninsula Campaign in March of 62, and then you'll see different units come in, and that's when the, the heavy artillerists come in, these massive, massive uh, regiments up to 1,600 men strong. They're generally not all together or unified until they go and fight in Virginia. 
but they're organized to specifically serve in the defenses of Washington. They're there to operate the large caliber guns from 100-pound Parrot rifles to 15-inch Rodman guns that could fire 400-pound shells. Um, and that's what they're trained to do. Every single day they do firing. They've got the range set um, on the countryside after they've cut down all the trees. And they're supposed to be there for the remainder of the war until 1864 when the Overland Campaign um, goes through and Grant needs reinforcements. And then you've got civilian employees as well. There's a lot of people that are being employed to work on the forts, including formerly enslaved African Americans, even civilian contractors as well, um, overseers, guys that are overseeing the construction. Um, everything is under the direction of the Army and the Corps of Engineers, but there's a lot of people that are getting employment just through the defenses of Washington itself. So I used to be a civilian contractor okay. uh, alongside the Corps of Engineers. So this is near and dear to my heart now. Uh, what, is, what is the situation like 155 years ago in those forts after these men have been removed to go with Grant and to go to the Overland Campaign? What's the situation like in that area at that time? That's a great question. Well, as I said, there's supposed to be at least 25,000 heavy artillerists in the city at all times. In Maine, in June of 1864, about 18,000 are sent to the front. So they're going to completely deplenish the force in Washington, and they're going to fill them in with rear echelon soldiers. So you hear a lot about the Veteran Reserve Corps, formerly the Invalid Corps, men that could no longer see heavy campaigning. Instead of sending these gentlemen home, they are like, let's use these guys so we can free up able-bodied men to go to the front. So a lot of these uh, gents will be in the forts, and then you're also going to see National Guard troops that sign up for 100 days. Um, you know, they're going to the state uh, governors are going to fill up these uh, quotas uh, set forth by the Lincoln administration. And for these men that sign up for 100 days, they'll avoid the draft. So you've got a lot of 100-day men in and around the forts. And their goal is to, again, release men to go to the front. They're not supposed to be uh, doing any heavy fighting. They'll be uh, govern, you know, guarding government property. The Veteran Reserve Corps even um, helped enforce the draft as well. So when Early comes towards D.C., he's facing really... Uh, secondary troops, if you'd like to say. And um, the famous story or the famous unit at Fort Stevens, Company K of the 150th Ohio National Guard, or they're Oberlin College students. So think about like the Pennsylvania students here in the 26th emergency, a lot like that, right? They're there for 100 days, and early comes down, and the first soldier killed in action was a college student from Oberlin College. So when when this, I call it the Capital Crisis of 1864, this is the famous battle where they organize about 1,500 government clerks from the quartermaster department. They empty hospitals. Um, they literally even empty the Navy Yard and send sailors up to the forts. I like to say everyone on, every, hands on, every hand on deck, literally. Um, so they're doing it's everything they can to secure the city long enough for reinforcements to arrive. So what is, what is Early's... Uh, situation at this time. General Early, of course, we know him from here at, yes. at Gettysburg. Uh, his men are pretty battle-hardened by this time, obviously, so they're coming into this area uh, with, with what determination? What are they trying to do? Well, Early's or orders somewhat changed throughout this um, campaign he embarks on. He's first sent off to Lynchburg to help relieve John Breckinridge, who's duking out with uh, David Hunter and the Army of West Virginia. So, you know, they're coming literally on the rear of, of Richmond there. And when Early arrives there, uh, David Hunter vacates the valley completely against orders. He's not supposed to do that. And 
So you're going to see this over the span of the next two or three weeks as early marches down the valley going north. Um, there's ominous reports coming from you know, federal intelligence and the railroad lines. Hey, there's a large Confederate force in the valley. And they send this information down to Grant at City Point, and Grant's like, oh, no, David Hunter's there. Don't worry, David Hunter will take care of that. And, you know, they get till the early July, and they're like, bro, I don't think David Hunter's coming. <laughs> he, he was all the way in West Virginia, completely cleared the valley. So, you know, there's a, a small force, the Reserve Division of the Army of West Virginia under Franz Siegel at Harper's Ferry, which in many ways uh, early will bypass. But he crosses the Potomac River, I believe, on July 5th. And by this point... You know, the, the railroads and um, uh, scouts and things like that, they're communicating with Lou Wallace at Baltimore in command of the Middle Department, and Lou Wallace decides to make a stand on the Monocacy River. So that's why we're so connected to that battlefield there. You know, they call it the battle that saved Washington because Lou Wallace was kind of in the backwaters uh, in command of the Middle Department um, in Baltimore, you know, after his early... Um, issues at Shiloh with U.S. Grant. He's kind of been sent away, and he's got a pretty small force of irregular troops himself. Uh, there's going to be Ohio National Guard troops there. There's going to be the Potomac Home Brigade, Veteran Reserve Corps, so really rear echelon troops, and he's going to hold the line as long as possible along the Monocacy River outside of Frederick, long enough for reinforcements to be sent up from Grant. When we did the live stream, we had Ryan Quint on our right. live stream, and uh, he wrote uh, the book for Emergency Civil War about Monocacy. And he had the opportunity, he went to uh, the area where Lou Wallace was from, and he had the opportunity to buy a shirt that said, Ben-Hur done that. <laughs> I love it, I love it, I love it. And I'm like, dude, you bought it, right? And he's like, no, I didn't buy it. And I'm like, oh, come on, man. That's, that's a great shirt. Uh, but yeah, a lot of people forget that he wrote Ben-Hur later on. Uh, but with him holding them off for a day at Monocacy, that, that, does that change the overall effect of that thrust for early as he's making his way towards Washington? Yeah, absolutely. If you look at the timeline of what's going on here, so he delays early by one full day. Early ends up fighting Lou Wallace for about eight and a half hours on July 9th, 1864, which he didn't expect to do. And a large, uh, you know, Lou Wallace was able to hold on for so long because... James Ricketts' division of the Third Corps had been sent up all the way to Baltimore on transport ships, and then they were taken by railroad all the way out to Monocacy River. So there were about 5,000 men of the Third Division of the Sixth Corps. These are veterans, and they're going to support his left flank, and they're going to fight ferociously throughout the day on July 9th, so much so that when Lou Wallace is finally driven off the field, one of the you know battles where the Federals are outnumbered and outgunned by artillery he writes a pretty ominous message to Washington around, I think, around 9 o'clock on the evening of July 11th. And he says, and I'm you know, paraphrasing this, I'm marching with a half-demoralized, uh, you know, tired, exhausted column. I think the men of the Sixth Corps fought magnificently. Two regiments of the Sixth Corps are recovering my treat. Um, I'll do everything I can to make it back to Baltimore. And then he also says, and I always kind of underline this, you'll have to make every exertion to save Washington. That's a pretty ominous message because there's no one else in the way. It's about 40 miles from Frederick, Maryland to Washington, D.C., and that was it. And so when he gets to the outskirts of the city on July 11th, around 12 o'clock on July 11th, he's not too far away. They're moving towards the northern defenses, 
towards Fort Stevens. And at 12 o'clock, the Federals uh, manning the forts here report that the Sixth Corps has arrived off the 7th Street Wharf. They've arrived off the Potomac River. And they'll get there late in the afternoon, early evening time. By that point, Early had been driven off by reinforcements that had already arrived uh, internally from the city. But imagine if Early had another full day. Um, this would have been one full day before the 6th Corps arrived, and also elements of the 19th Corps as well. They're coming from the Department of Gulf or the Gulf of Mexico. They just happen to be on transport ships by Petersburg. They're supposed to be there to reinforce Grant, and he sends these guys up the river. They don't even leave the boats. So you got about 15,000 men on their way to D.C., and Wallace is able to delay them about one full day. Made so those, a huge difference. So those 19th Corps guys are actually coming from New Orleans, right? That's right. And that's been, right. They're not even off the boat. They're not <laughs> even off the boat. And if you look at the men that are sent up to help reinforce Washington, they become the nucleus of the Army of the Shenandoah later in the year. So you've got elements of the 6th Corps. You've got the Army of West Virginia. You've got the 19th Corps. The only thing that's really missing is Sheridan and the, the cavalry that he brings up with him. That's the nucleus of the Army of the Shenandoah that's going to duke it out with Jubal Early for the rest of the fall. So it all kind of makes sense. It leads, we just talk about one evolution after the another, right? You've got the Battle of Fort Stevens, Early retreats, and then heads west, and he doesn't really go anywhere. He hangs out in the area um, long enough um, to pester Lincoln that he calls for Grant to send someone up here to take command of all the troops in the area and defeat Early. He ends up sending Phil Sheridan. How important is this whole action because it's an election year? I think it's one of the biggest reasons you see Lincoln so active in regards to, first of all, releasing so many men from the defenses of Washington. I kind of feel like he's pushing all the chips into the table. When Grant asks for men, he's going to send them as men, right? And it's really interesting. There's a really... Inter uh, interesting kind of um, dialogue between Grant and Petersburg and Lincoln and Washington because they're writing each other messages back and forth about the military situation and you really see Lincoln evolve as a commander-in-chief and at one point before the Sixth Corps arrives up to DC he says this is not an order just a suggestion what do you think what do you think about you coming up here taking command of all the forces coming together around DC and destroying this force. At this point, they know it's Juba Early commanding um, Ewell's Corps. And you take command of the troops and destroy this enemy force before they cross the Potomac River and reunite with Lee. And Grant's like, I'm sending a capable officer, Horatio Wright of the Sixth Corps, and other officers as well, including Quincy Gilmore. Quincy Gilmore will command elements of the 19th Corps. And um, I believe that this unit will, this force will never make it back across the Potomac River. But it's really interesting to see this dialogue here, right? Um, and you can tell they really trust each other. And, you know, they believe that, um, all right, if you, if you think you've got a capable officer coming up here, then I'll trust you with that and we'll go from there. This is also the same period where Lincoln hits the front line. That's right. Yeah, this is the... This is the famous battle, and, and since I've got my friends from Gettysburg here, um, Lincoln was not here to dedicate a cemetery. He was, he was here to see the action, okay? So there are numerous accounts. I see my friends laughing in the corner, but we believe Jubal, I mean, we actually believe Lincoln was out there on both days. So he arrived, because he's around the Lincoln's Cottage or, you know, the summer um, residence or summer White House, 
and he's operating between there and the executive office or the White House, and he's around the city. He wants the city, the citizens in the city to see him and basically calm the nerves down, right? Because you've got refugees fleeing in from Maryland. You've got government clerks being armed. You've got volunteer companies of civilians being armed, right? It's, it's kind of crisis in many ways. So he's out there to kind of calm the nerves of everyone in town. And when he hears the action goes on, we have accounts that he was out there on July 11th at Fort Stevens for about an hour, perhaps, until about noon when he hears that the Sixth Corps has arrived off the Potomac River. Apparently, from that point, he's going to ride all the way down to the Potomac River and welcome the troops off the transport ships. So this is one of the um, kind of the great episodes of the campaign because the Sixth Corps soldiers remember seeing Lincoln and they're having a great old time and talking to the president as they're coming off the ships. This is the famous line where apparently Lincoln tells the soldiers, you can't be late if you want to get early. Right. Everyone laughs about that, okay? I love it. One of my favorite, one of my favorite dad jokes from Lincoln. And um, so they send these guys directly up the road towards Fort Stevens. That, uh, now, uh, uh, today we call that Georgia Avenue, and they come straight up. So that's the first day. The second day is the kind of mythical day when he comes out on July 12th, sometime in the early to late afternoon. He's welcomed at the fort by Horatio Wright of the Sixth Corps escorted to the front and starts kind of pacing the parapet, observing the action in front of him. There was a surgeon standing next to him from the 102nd Pennsylvania. He actually writes a really candid account about this, and he says, you know, I'm standing by the president, and I hear like a thud on and the sound that everyone knows of a bullet hitting you know, a human body, and it turned out to be his own leg. So the surgeon is severely wounded, is removed from the fort, and this is where all the stories come in of you know, someone yelling to the president to get down, you fool, get down, you damn fool. What are you doing? You're going to get yourself shot. There's 30 to 40 people that claim to tell Lincoln to do that. I'm not exactly sure who did, including um, Oliver Wendell um, Holmes Jr., right, the future Supreme Court justice. We were just going through some of the files, and um, he didn't even write about that. Someone asked him if he had any recollections of, about Lincoln before he um, passed away, and he said no. So... Who knows, but the president was later escorted away from the fort back to the White House, and his press secretaries, Nicolay and Hay, just talk about how excited he was that he saw the action and he was back in the White House. So that's the account, several of them, of course. And if you uh, go to Battleground National Cemetery, you'll appreciate this because we're at Gettysburg and there's so many monuments on the field. There's a monument in our cemetery to a federal regiment, I believe it's the 122nd New York, and it says, like, dedicated to the men who fought in the defense um, of Washington in the presence of Abraham Lincoln, right on the monument, right? So after the war, of course, everyone wants to be associated with Abraham Lincoln in his memory. So every single person says, I saw Lincoln in action. I told him to get down. And, and, and if you look at the maps, we're like, your regiment was like two miles away. There was probably no way in heck, but who knows, Right. So it's, it's a part of the, and that's why the, the story has become so famous, because the president was out there under fire. Right. It's, it's kind of like the story with, here at Gettysburg, where people, the veterans would come back later on, and they, and they claimed that, like, over 300,000 veterans claimed they were at Gettysburg. Right, exactly. And there's absolutely no way, obviously. Well, I'll happened. also give you another Gettysburg connection. My, 
my friend Abner Doubleday was out in D.C. So the one thing that the defense of the Washington had in the summer of 1864 is they had a lot of forts, they had a lot of guns, and they had a lot of out-of-work generals. And I'm going to give you this list of out-of-work generals that they put to work. First and foremost is Alexander McCook, uh, formerly of the 20th Corps of the Army of the Cumberland. Think of Chickamauga fame. He's been out of work since Chickamauga and has been awaiting orders. So he's recalled by Secretary of War Stan and, and Halleck to the War Department. And uh, due to his rank, I believe he was um, promoted to Major General in like July of 62. Like he was a senior guy on the field. So he commanded all the northern defenses, right? You also got Montgomery Meigs, the Quartermaster General. He's going to command frontline troops and the Quartermaster Department, 1,500 men. You've got Abner Doubleday who was looking for work since Gettysburg in many ways, and they send him out to the southeast forts. Abner Day, Doubleday gets out there and he reports back, I see forts, but I don't see any men out here, so what do you want me to do? Well, Halleck writes back, actually don't take, take command of the, um, of the forts, come back to the city and take charge of the Union Loyal League of Men. So this volunteer group of citizens you, you're, in, you're in charge of them, okay? So you got Abner Doubleday, and then you've got Quincy Gilmore. He's coming off. He's been relieved of duty with the Army of the James um, down in Virginia, and he's sent up here for orders as well, and he's going to take command of elements of the 19th Corps. So I call it uh, reaching for the stars, right? There's so many out-of-work generals. And actually, my favorite account, and I think everyone will appreciate this, there's a brigadier general on 5th Street in New York City, he writes, to the sec uh, he writes to Henry Halleck, the chief of staff, and says, hey, can I like render my services? And Henry Halleck has one of the best drop your mic moments, I believe, in the Civil War. And he literally says to this Brigadier General, we have 10 times as many uh, generals as we do privates. Um, you know, if you're willing to send privates, they'll be happily accepted. So that's kind of what they were dealing with in DC. So. There was about 12,000 or so troops, they say, in the northern defenses when the battle began. But as I said, most of them were rear echelon troops. So you have well over 60 forts around there at that time. That's right. And all these miles of basically entrenchments or, or connecting roads and, right. and bridges and stuff. What is the legacy of that post-war? How's that change? Wow, that's, that's a great question. Well, the forts are around to about eight, April of 1866. Um, there's actually, you're going to see a lot, so some of the images you see of like the USCT regiments in the forts, the famous image of those black soldiers lined up against the barracks there, that's Fort Lincoln. That's in Northeast D.C. So a lot of those USCT regiments were raised in 1863, signed up for three-year enlistments, so they have to be around for another year or so. Um, so they're in D.C. until about 1866. Um, the chief engineer that takes over for John um, Barnard's, you know, he tells the War Department, who, um, you know, after Lee surrenders, were like, hey, let's just get rid of the forts and, you know, um, so we don't have any more expenditure. And he writes back, well, he's like, do you realize what happened like three years ago or four years ago when we didn't have any defense in the city? So he's like, I think we should keep some around. So he writes a report. The forts are classified in three different classes, first, second, and third. Uh, the first class, we're going to keep these forts around. There's about 20 of them. Second class, uh, reserve status. Third class, which will be the majority of them, will be um, abandoned and returned to, to the private landowners. The army actually goes in. They take out, obviously, the munitions and artillery pieces, and then they auction off the property 
of the forts to try to pay back the, the federal coffers, which is really interesting. Um, there are some forts, if you look on your brochure, the, the first image um, on the front of it is Fort uh, Foot. You see that large caliber gun on the front of it. That was in service until 1873-74. So there were forts that, went, uh, that stayed in commission for another four, five, six years. And what's really important about Fort Foot is it's the precursor to the Endicott system with the uh, coastal batteries because they've got these 15-inch rodmans on the coast, on the Potomac River, and they're testing like disappearing carriages. Uh, they're testing unreinforced concrete. So they're just trying all these different things that by the 1880s will become the Endicott coastal defense system. So I feel, I feel, I believe that's one of the rare sites in the country that is a Civil War site turned pre-Endicott system. So as I said, the majority of the forts return to the civilian landowners. The majority of them are knocked down. You know, people build property again. They build farms and stuff like that. Uh, there are tons and tons of people that will file uh, claims of damages against the federal government. Some people are awarded money. Others are not. By 1890... Um, there's a group of Washingtonians, including veterans, that want to preserve the defenses of Washington as early as 1891. So they're going to spend the next literally 60 years trying to figure out what that means. So if you look at our map and you see all the sites in blue, those are NPS sites. They created something called Fort Drive. And the idea was to build this boulevard around the city, comparable to like, you know, Paris, basically where citizens of D.C. could ride out in their carriages and go and see the forts and enjoy nature and history. That never really worked out due to funding and um, the urban growth of the city. But if you see that arc now, that's the legacy of Fort Drive. And you can go to places in D.C. and see the streets, and it says Fort Drive. That's all NPS property. So we, we may not be connected by one clear road, but you, you do, do see the arc around the city. So as I said, of the original 68 plus 93 batteries, we managed 17 sites. Arlington County uh, manages about three. Alexandria manages three or four sites as well. So not too bad for um, post-Washington, D.C. Right. So if anyone here or watching wants to go to some of these spots, uh, what, are, what are some that you would say are you have to go see this? This is the one. I mean, all of them are important, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. I would suggest um, if they're in Virginia, Northern Virginia, go to um, Fort Ward, uh, which is managed by um, Alexandria, and they've got a wonderful museum there, and they've got reconstructed earthworks, and I've been working with their staff. I've also been working with the staff from um, Arlington County as well. They've got Fort C. of Smith and Fort Ethan Allen. They just opened up a new visitor center at Fort C. of Smith on the weekends for a couple hours. Go and check that out. We'll be doing some programs with them during the fall. And if you come to the Park Service side, uh, definitely see Fort Stevens. Um, it was, it's a, um, talk about post-war you know, reclamation. Um, Fort Stevens was rebuilt by the CCC in 1937-38. So that's also a really cool story. Um, we've got images of the fort in the early 1900s where you can still see the embrasures and the earthworks. The majority of the fort is gone. But in 1937, the CC came in and rebuilt a section of the fort, and it's still there today. I would say be sure to visit Battleground National Cemetery, where uh, my office is. The, the lodge itself is not open to the public, but the grounds are. 
And if you're in D.C., I mean, just follow us on our Facebook page, Civil War Defense of the Washington. It's a, a National Park Service page. Or go to our website, mps.gov um, slash cwdw. And just send me a message. I'd be happy to meet you and give you a free tour and show you what we have. Yeah, and we're talking about in the future, uh, Steve and I getting together in Chinatown, doing big history in Little Chinatown. That's right. We're going to do that. So, so we're, we're, we're talking about doing that. We got to we got to do that live too. I think. So we, as I said, we, I do a lot of different history in D.C. because there is so much Civil War history, and I'm um, and I talked to Chris about this last year from Gettysburg and staff at other parks, MPS parks that do history at Sunset, which I know are really popular with the public. And I just started thinking about sites in D.C. that we could do history at sunset at. And the first site I did last summer was, let's do Fort Stevens, but let's not even talk about the battle. And I, um, so the idea of doing it at Fort Stevens, I think, was kind of like the beacon to bring people in. But I talked about the interaction of, you know, former slaves or enslaved people coming in the federal lines. And we had really vivid, candid accounts from the soldiers um, in the camps around D.C. that talked about that. And the visitors really enjoyed that program because the landscape in D.C. has changed so dramatically. It was kind of really insightful to kind of talk about those stories. Uh, I, we did one at Logan Circle. If anyone's been to D.C., John Logan, you know, the major general in the Union Army, you know, he's buried in D.C. and G.A.R. and all that stuff. And so there's a really great monument to him there. But during the Civil War, it was called Camp Barker, uh, formerly like a cavalry camp. But he, he became this large contraband camp during the war where thousands of former slaves came into federal lines. They were put in this area, and there was so much death and disease in that area, they built contraband hospital. So there was a contraband hospital just a few blocks away, and so we talked about that. And so this year, um, coming up on August 2nd, I'll be at President Lincoln's Cottage, and we'll talk about, it's called Lincoln at War. And I'm working with their wonderful staff there. They've got a wonderful education team. And Lincoln spends a good portion of his presidency at you know, the, his summer cottage um, where they, you know, they um, dedicate one of the first national cemeteries and he sees the war get bigger and bigger and what the toll it takes on um, families and, you know, even his own psyche and what it's, it's doing to the country. Um, so he reflects quite a bit there. And I'll be talking about his um, his kind of role as commander in chief, which evolves um, moving forward. So there's a lot of stuff we can do in D.C. And we're just trying to connect visitors to as many stories and um people and human interest uh, accounts as we can and you are doing a great job of it because i've always seen you on there doing stuff so i appreciate that yeah, yeah there's um, there's a lot to do and i've got a lot of fans that i'm trying to connect with right um <laughs> here and there um so we're um i feel like we're doing it right um yeah. we've um we've gauged a lot of interest you know when i first started there was maybe three or four people on programs and now we're getting 50 to 60 to 90 people so um I'm happy to, you know, to say that, you know, despite what you read in the papers, you know, history is not dead, and people are really interested in history and the Civil War, and they just want to be connected to it or given the opportunity to go out and experience these events, these places, and um, that's what uh, we're trying to do, not only in the Park Service, but, you know, things like Tattooed Historian and all these other history organizations and associations and parks and museums and we're just doing our part to connect visitors to history. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I'm so glad that you were able to join us this evening to talk about the Civil War defenses at, at Washington. And I'm so glad that you all came out. We're going to have time for Q&A, but first I want to thank Steve for, thank for coming out. Thank you. I appreciate out. it. And thank you all for coming out.